evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're tuned in to Kingston Currents here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Brought to you by the local journalism initiative, Queen's University, and What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street. I'm CFRC's broadcast journalist, Christina Laurie, here to keep you up to date on all things Limestone local news. To start us off, an update from the city, Kingston Fire and Rescue welcomes a new deputy chief. Kingston Fire and Rescue is pleased to announce Don Carter has been hired as deputy chief of operations and training. In a quote from KFR Fire Chief Monique Belair, we are thrilled to welcome Deputy Carter to Kingston Fire and Rescue, bringing with him more than 30 years of distinguished firefighting service and dedication to public safety. Don is a diligent, thorough individual who will serve the Kingston community well, end quote. Deputy Carter comes to KFR from Belleville Fire and Emergency Services, where he most recently served as Deputy Fire Chief of Emergency Response. He began his career as a volunteer firefighter in 1992, transitioning to a full-time urban firefighter role in 2000. Deputy Carter played a key role in developing Belleville's robust training system. He represented Belleville Fire and Emergency Services on the provincial branch of the National Fire Protection Association and Swift Water Advisory Committee. Deputy Carter also served as chair of Belleville's Bereavement Committee. Chief Blair states, in his three decades of service, Don has had many achievements, including his extensive experience working on committees focused on training for emergency workers. He's demonstrated in-depth knowledge of standards and training requirements, and his insights and expertise will be significant assets to KFR, end quote. In Kingston, Deputy Carter will be a member of the KFR Fire Management Team and play an integral role of planning, organizing, coordinating, and directing the day-to-day operations of KFR. Deputy Carter is well-versed in fire department operating guidelines, emergency support services, regulations, public education, policies, and applicable standards. One of Deputy Carter's first priorities will be to ensure all members of KFR are trained to the appropriate levels to meet the legislative requirements for fire service certification standards. Coming to Ontario on July 1, 2026, Deputy Carter began his new role yesterday on August 21st. KHSC to reduce weekend hours at its Urgent Care Center. Starting Saturday, August 26th, Kingston Health Sciences Center's Urgent Care Center, located at its Hotel Deer Hospital site, will be reducing its hours of operation on weekends. Facing a shortage of emergency medicine physicians, the decision to reduce weekend hours at the UCC was made in order to ensure adequate physician staffing at the emergency department, located at the Kingston General Hospital site. Moving forward, the UCC will operate Saturdays and Sundays from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Weekday operating hours will continue to be 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday to Friday. As a reminder, the UCC caps the daily number of patients that can be seen, which means it may also close registration earlier than the posted closing time. The cap is determined daily based on the number of patients, physician and nurse staffing levels, wait times, and the complexity of patients receiving care. In a statement from Dr. David Messenger, head of the Department of Emergency Medicine, despite our recruitment efforts, we continue to be significantly short-staffed and our doctors and nurses are stretched thin. We need to take this action to preserve access to safe, timely, and high-quality emergency care for patients with serious illnesses and injuries. As staffing challenges became a significant concern last summer, the UCC first began capping the number of patients that could be seen each day to enable healthcare teams to spend the appropriate amount of time with each patient and to provide safe and effective care. However, over the last six months, emergency physician staffing in particular has decreased further, resulting in the reduction of weekend hours at the UCC. This is due to an inability to fill all the shifts required to maintain current operating hours at the UCC, while also filling all shifts necessary to provide care for the high volume of patients at the emergency department, which serves as Southeastern Ontario's major referral center for trauma, stroke, cardiology, subspecialized surgery, and mental health and addiction care. The emergency department at the KGH site will remain open and available 24-7 to provide care for patients with serious illnesses and injuries. The UCC, meanwhile, continues to be available seven days per week to serve patients with urgent health concerns. Dr. Messenger explains, we want to remind the community that the UCC serves patients that have new medical conditions and injuries that can't wait to be 
treated in another setting, such as a primary care or family doctor's clinic, walk-in or virtual care clinic, or a community pharmacy. Examples of urgent conditions include cuts needing stitches, wounds or burns, sprains, or suspected minor broken bones, and symptoms of infection, such as pain, fever, vomiting, rash, in otherwise healthy people. The UCC is not an appropriate place to seek care for chronic and ongoing health issues or mental health concerns, end quote. For critical or life-threatening conditions that need immediate attention, patients should not hesitate to go to the nearest emergency department or call 911. You can visit rightplacecare.ca to learn more about the alternate care options available in our communities. In an update from South Frontenac, Sydenham Point Park Beach is still closed for swimming. Sydenham Point Park Beach is still closed for swimming due to unacceptable levels of E. coli in the water. The water is being tested regularly by KFLNA Public Health, and signs are posted at the beach. Residents are advised to not swim or enter the water until KFLNA Public Health confirms the beach is safe for swimming again. Throughout the summer, KFLNA Public Health monitors the water quality at all municipally owned or operated public beaches within the Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington region. Monitoring is done weekly from early June until the end of August. At southfrontenac.net, you can find a list of other beaches and parks in South Frontenac that are safe for swimming. This Friday, the Kingston Frontenac Public Library Central Branch will be hosting an exhibit, Capturing Resilience, which aims to chronicle the community's pandemic experiences. In a world reshaped by the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, KFPL is hosting a compelling photo voice exhibit that casts a spotlight on the stories of hope, resilience, and community that have emerged throughout this time. Families Building Healthy Communities, Resilience During Hard Times is curated by Queen's University Innovations for Community Resilience, Equity, and Advocacy. It explores how community members found solace and connection despite isolation and social challenges. The exhibit will be on display in the Central Branch Gather Space this Friday on August 25th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Registration is not required to attend. For more information, you can visit calendar.kfpl.ca. With the support of a donation from the Rossi Foundation, Queen's University and the Department of Psychiatry are working to launch a new student mental health resource center that will help improve student well-being at Queen's and other university and college campuses. Students may be most familiar with Flourish, a team of researchers based at Queen's from their student well-being and academic success study via online surveys, which has been sent out to all first-year Queen's students since 2018. These surveys, along with their other initiatives, have already translated into tools to improve mental health on Queen's campus. With this donation from the Rossi Foundation, Uflourish will be able to launch their own Student Mental Health Research Center, expanding their capacity for student mental health research through national and international collaborations. They will also be partnering with Queen's Student Wellness to understand how to best support student well-being and mental health research. The Uflourish Research Center aims to generate and translate evidence into resources, tools, educational assets, and integrated care models and pathways to support student well-being and mental health. The center's initiatives will be designed to align with the recommendations recommendations of the national standard and will collaborate closely with the best practices in Canadian Higher Education Network. I sat down with Professor Anne Duffy of the Queen's University Department of Psychiatry, a pioneer in student mental health research and lead of the U Flourish Centre, to talk about what we can expect to see from the centre come this September. So to start us off, I was wondering if you could speak a bit to student mental health as a research field in general. Well, most reports um, and white papers, so authoritative papers, have uh, come to the same conclusion, which is we need large-scale reliable data to inform us as to what the student need is in terms of mental health burden and in terms of well-being support. And also we need um, then targeted evidence-based student-tailored resources and um, support and to evaluate those. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And would you say that the past few years with COVID have had a big impact on this field? 
Oh, absolutely. Well, we know, for example, that as in the trends in young people's mental health generally, um, COVID has had a negative impact at amplifying, you know, symptoms of common mental problems, such as anxiety and depressive symptom levels, as well as reduced well-being. And so students, of course, have followed the trend in the young people general population and has shown amplification of symptom levels. Um, now that has, based on our data and data from others, that has come down somewhat since the new norm, so to speak, after the, the peak of the pandemic, but it hasn't returned to baseline levels. Well, thank you for that background. So far with um, student mental health research, of course, it's taking place at Queen's. Would you say this is um, an underserved area? Well, this is an under um, studied area for sure. We're actually pioneers in this work and world leaders mm -hmm. at Queen's. We started the research only in 2017 um, under the Youth Flourish banner, and um, we've been very productive and successful at achieving competitive individual grants. Um, and also translated that work into five UK universities in an MRC grant. Um, so I think we've been, you know, very, very productive in addressing knowledge gap. What the center funding is for is to really build capacity now in this new area of research. And it's going to do that by bringing together a collaborative network of lead investigators as, in partnership with students and community and campus stakeholders. So leaders of the university and we're going to um, we've identified several work streams um, which will be funded through the center so one is um, sort of development of a curated library of resources and solutions off the shelf that could then be adapted and implemented at other higher education uh, centers and universities that are is evidence-based and that comes directly from funded research Another is translating findings and consulting on policy and standards across universities, something akin to what Universities UK does, um, but we could establish something in Universities Canada, for example. Um, and also building capacity through training the next generation of student researchers. So we have student stipends and exchange um, funding um, to really build capacity for the future, present and future. And uh, we also have a work stream dedicated to compassionate campus. So what should and can the universities do in order to review their pedagogy, their practices such as learning accommodations, their values, and sustainability and communication with students to foster well-being? As a Queen student, I think uh, most of my knowledge of you flourishes through all those surveys they would send out and the research <laughs> they do amongst the student population. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to you flourish as it has been the last few years, um, as well as how the donation is going to transform Uflourish. Yeah. So Uflourish started, as I mentioned, um, uh, uh, with me applying for a grant of, um, I think at the time, $30,000 for one year, mm -hmm. uh, which was um, actually a partnership between Rossi Foundation and CIHR, which is the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And for that much money, I thought to myself, what could we do that was meaningful that we could build on? And this is a competitive funding bid, so we put in an application. And what we did was, the sur I always say the survey is so much more than a survey. It's a conversation with students. It's starting a conversation. And we made it digital, and this was before COVID, because we wanted to inv invite all students coming into Queen's. So we targeted all first-year students, undergraduate, coming into Queen's to say, join the conversation, have your say, let us know how you're feeling, how you're doing, and what, and then following up with students at the end of the academic year, what resources, if any, have you reached out to, and what was your experience with these? And so that was the beginning of the Youth Flourish survey. It, it, it was unique in that 
it was meant to be a conversation. It was meant to continue. And it was to follow students over the course of their undergraduate careers. And we did learn a lot from that. We got 60% of all first-year Queen students joining the conversation, which is unprecedented. You know, a lot of these quote-unquote surveys have like 18%, for example. So we got a really good, robust engagement and response from the students. So thanks to Queen students. And then we got... Um, uh, we also won the bid for the next round of competitive funding for two years, and we invited the University of Oxford to the table because I'm a visiting professor there, and they were very intrigued by the study. And they recognized the need for large-scale reliable data in the UK population. So now we have mm -hmm. two major universities, one in Canada, Queen's, one in the UK, Oxford, and we can compare between countries. And so... That was the next round of Youth Flourish surveys. And then during the pandemic, we were able to continue with funding from the Mont Gainsland Foundation, who were really excited about this work along with other funders. And we were able to translate the findings into, you've had your say, here's what we've heard. So we made tools uh, organized in a step care approach, which means more increasing intensity in its student need. So we started and we developed the um, mental health literacy course, course, which students would know at Queen's as IDIS 199, the science of mental health well-being and resiliency. And it's an accredited course um, offered through the Bachelor of Health Sciences program, but it's, it's interdisciplinary and it's a one semester course. It's been hugely successful. And students um, at Queen's have uh, had the opportunity to opt into research, to look at changes in the course and what, what how is the course, is the course effective? Who is it effective for and why is it effective? So why is it, is it positively changing student emotional self-awareness, lifestyle, you know, um, uh, recognizing symptoms? And then we also launched iSpiro, the Youth Flourish Wellbeing platform, which was a, is a one-stop shop for students to log in, create their own account. There's um, pre-populated wellbeing plans that are evidence-based that students can use for free, obviously. There's also digital resources there. There's signposting students based on their symptom levels to resources. And also you can flip that into an, uh, a, an encrypted or secure URL to your provider anywhere, not just on campus, if you're engaging in some sort of uh, intervention or treatment. So that's the, and then we actually tried to embed um, iSpiro into a care pathway at student wellness. Um, we weren't so successful with that yet, but we're hoping to continue to work with student wellness on that care pathway development. How will this donation help to move the Youth Flourish Center forward? So so what I described to you in a nutshell was a, was a sort of historical um, summary of funded research mm -hmm. uh, under the brand of Youth Flourish. And the center, as I mentioned, is really meant to be a collaborative network, bringing in lead research from researchers and students from across disciplines to participate in student mental health research and to have small seed grants for to advance innovation and new ideas, um, to translate findings into a curated library of off-the-shelf resources and solutions mm -hmm. that other universities can. So it's going beyond individual grants and really creating capacity for student mental health research beyond these individual funded studies. I'm sure what this is going to look like will come to shape in September when things really ramp up. But um, I was curious about what else this could look like, more resources at student wellness or? Yeah, we're hoping to partner with our own, obviously, student wellness. We have a meeting uh, later in August and also with other student wellnesses across 
Canada and in the UK and maybe the EU um, and uh, look at how we can sort of work together to translate findings into new, for example, care pathways and services that then we can evaluate together and maybe embed benchmarks and standards that we can, you know, evaluate moving forward on a rolling basis. So those conversations are just getting underway. Um, so I think we should be very proud as a Queen's community that we've made such a contribution already, really just starting since 2017. Definitely, yeah. I'd say Queen's is definitely acting as a leader on this project. That's really awesome. And potentially this is the catalyst for some major developments in student mental health research. So that's really amazing well, to hear. Yeah, and it wouldn't, you know, it's not for us without us. So this would not be possible without the student involvement and partnerships. You know, this is a student-led, student engagement campaign designed and rolled out by Queen's students. So it's just been an awesome collaboration with the student population. So I just wanted to thank them and acknowledge their um, contribution to this work. Onkwanata Resource Centre is now celebrating 75 years in Kingston. Since the organization was established in 1948, they have been offering a range of services and support to people with developmental disabilities and their families in Eastern Ontario, including group living, mental and physical health services, and community programming. I sat down with CEO of Onkwanata, Alistair Lamb, to talk a bit about the history of the organization, how far we've come in the 75 years since its inception, and their kickoff picnic which took place on August 16th. Well, to get started, would you like to introduce yourself and your role with Onguanada? Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Alistair Lamb, uh, and I am the CEO uh, at, uh, at Onguanada. Awesome. And for those unfamiliar with Onguanada, would you like to describe some of the supports and services that you provide? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, Onguanada, as, uh, as is patently obvious, uh, has been in existence for 75 years. Uh, and over the course of those uh, 75 years, has, uh, if you like, morphed from a TB sanatorium, which is what it was back in 1948, uh, to the organization that we have today, uh, which provides supports and services and care for people with uh, developmental disabilities. Uh, and those supports and services are, are, are multifaceted. Uh, we provide uh, group home living uh, for about 140 uh, individuals. Uh, in 24 group homes uh, and three specialised uh, group homes in uh, Kingston, um, Gananoque uh, and Napanee. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we provide uh, community supports or community programming uh, or day programming uh, where, where people with developmental disabilities will come to one of three locations, two in Kingston, one in Napanee, uh, where they will um, participate in programming uh, at those locations and will uh, be involved in community uh, community activities. The objective is to get people out into the community and participating uh, as members of the community in much the same way as, uh, as you or I do. Um, and in addition to that, we do have a, a fairly large clinical footprint uh, so we provide, if you like, medical care uh, for people with developmental disabilities uh, who have co medical comorbidities. Um, so we have nursing staff, we have um, physiotherapy, we have um, social work staff, uh, we have our own pharmacy, etc., etc., etc. We also have a host family program where people with developmental disabilities will live with a family that's not their own uh, biological family, 
um, and be supported by that family in their in their home. Uh, and also we have, we support people who live independently uh, or semi-independently uh, in the community, but who require some assistance for uh, for certain things like uh, managing bills or lease agreements or that kind of stuff. So that gives you uh, a bit of an idea of the spectrum of uh, services that we offer. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for that. And I mean, 75 years, that's such an exciting milestone. I was wondering what that means for you. What it means for me uh, is is the, the, the fact that uh, the way society, um, uh, if you like, uh, looks upon people with developmental disabilities has certainly changed over that 75 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, back until the, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, people with uh, developmental disabilities were institutionalized. Uh, in large, uh, almost hospital-like settings. Um, and then back in, the, as I say, the late 80s, early 90s, it moved to more community integration. So people would live in uh, residences or homes, much like family homes, uh, interspersed uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the community. So that shift in, if you like, the attitude, if you like, uh, towards people with developmental disabilities has been a, a significant improvement uh, because people with uh, with uh, such disabilities have every bit as much uh, right to make choices or participate in community as anybody else can. They just need a wee bit of support to do so, uh, but that they should be afforded the same rights and privileges as anybody else. And I was wondering if you had any um, particular topics you were focusing on as you move on with your 75th anniversary events and initiatives. In terms of uh, you know, what we're focusing on uh, in, in, in this 75th uh, anniversary year uh, is, is more of the same, more uh, mm-hmm. integration, more involvement, more participation of people with developmental disabilities in the fabric of, uh, of Kingston. Uh, as a community, Napanee as a community, and Gananoque as a community. Good stuff. And I believe yesterday you had your kickoff with your uh, picnic with your volunteer staff, etc. How was that? It was phenomenal. Uh, it, it was a wonderful day. Uh, fortunately, the weather complied. Uh, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 plus uh, people who we support. Uh, staff, volunteers, retirees, board members, and a couple of dignitaries uh, that uh, that stopped along the way. Uh, they had a picnic, uh, which comprised of you know, burgers, sausages, etc., uh, more of barbecue style, um, some games, music, uh, live music. Uh, it really was. And to see the smile on, on the faces of, uh, of the people that we support who participated yesterday, the majority of our folks did. Uh, but to see the smile on their faces and the opportunity to get together, particularly after the last three years uh, where such events really haven't been able to uh, have occurred, uh, really was quite heartwarming. It's awesome to hear. I mean, that was just your kickoff. Uh, what other kinds of events do you have planned? Or if you'd like to keep that under wraps until a little later, that's all right as well. Well, we're, we're, we're kind of keeping that under wraps for oh, now. Oh, sounds good. But, but certainly along over the course of the next uh, year, we will be sharing uh, more information about the history of Onganada, what Onganada means, developmental disabilities, developmental services, uh, through our media channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, et cetera, as well as, uh, as, well as our website, uh, as well as more, shall we say, conventional media. 
Once again, that was Alistair Lamb, CEO of Onguanada Resource Center, on entering their 75th anniversary year. Be sure to keep up with Onguanada Resource Center on their social media channels so you don't miss any of their 75th anniversary resources and events. Kingston City Council unanimously votes to allow civil marriage ceremonies at City Hall. At their only meeting scheduled for August, the proposal to make civil marriage ceremonies available at City Hall was brought before City Council. A civil marriage ceremony is a non-religious marriage ceremony presided over by an Ontario judge, justice of the peace, or a municipal clerk under the authority of a license. Currently, civil marriages are not available in Kingston. While different types of marriage ceremonies, including non-denominational, have taken place at City Hall in the past, religious officiants have facilitated those unions. Councillor Tozo, also a member of the Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, stated the following when the motion was introduced. Uh, I firmly believe that it's time to embrace change allows civil marriages to take place right here in our city hall. Uh, marriage is a sacred union, a celebration of love, commitment and unity between two individuals. It is a fundamental right that should be accessible to everybody regardless of their gender, sexuality, religion or beliefs. Allowing civil marriages at City Hall is a step towards promoting inclusivity and equity, ensuring that no one is denied the opportunity to legally and officially formalize their love. Embracing civil marriages at City Hall is not just about upholding the principles of equality, it also has practical advantages, of which the uh, one of our delegation spoke of. It simplifies the bureaucratic progress, reducing paperwork, and prevents people from driving to Trenton, which I think it's worth it. <laughs> By streamlining this process, we enable couples to focus on what truly matters, their love and their commitment to each other. It is their story. Many councillors expressed their surprise at Kingston City Hall lacking this option before now. I was really surprised when I became elected and learned that we didn't offer this service. Uh, just looking around this building, it screams marriage, honestly. Um, City Council unanimously supported this motion, with Councillors Glenn and Osnick saying the following. Um, I'm just generally going to say uh, I think it's about time. Uh, the more options that are available to people to um, exercise their rights, the better. And so I'm fully in support of the motion. Thank you. It is about time. As an um, EDI activist, I'm very happy to see these, these type of changes coming through. And I want to appreciate city staff uh, for the recommendation and coming forward and making our city more equitable uh, and inclusive. Thank you very much. Now that council has approved the motion, city staff intend to ensure that the service is available for January 2024. To start, ceremonies will take place one day per month with an option of three different time slots. If required, they will look into increasing this number to meet demand. That is all things current in Kingston for this week. Thank you for listening to CFRC's local news programming, brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada under the Local Journalism Initiative, Queen's University, and What All I Wear at 732 Princess Street. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next. What'll I Wear offers the best in vintage, funky, one-of-a-kind treasures, clothing, accessories, and a fabulous selection of jewels, vintage and new. Find the cutest purse, the most dashing of hats and sunglasses, everything to complete your individual look. What'll I Wear has it all. They can dress you from top to bottom. Find your new fashion fave at What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street in Kingston. Visit their new location and follow them on Facebook to keep up to date with what's in store at What'll I Wear. 
Dear listeners, as you may have heard, Meta, which owns Instagram and Facebook, is blocking Canadian access to all content created by news providers, including this radio station, in response to the Online Broadcasting Act. Access to local news and information matters to everyone, and while radio stations use their airwaves to keep you informed, we also use social media to share local news, events, and initiatives, and even content about our upcoming programming. We need you to write your MP and convey your concerns. Learn more and find a letter template for your MP on our website, cfrc.ca. Thank you for your support. 